Our scripture reading this morning for the Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, page 569 in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of our Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 20, page 879 of the Pew Bible. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. 
but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the word of our Lord. In the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, there's a small diner called the Dutch Pantry, and it's an Amish-run diner. And after a youth retreat, myself and our youth staff stopped there for lunch. And as we walked in the building, directly to my right, there is a map of the United States. And on that map were a bunch of pins with strings attached to them. And all the strings were attached to a nail that was placed right on where the Dutch pantry was in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. There were pins everywhere, from New York and California, from Maine, one from Alaska, Florida. I don't know if anyone from Tennessee had quite gone there yet, but I'm sure there were. This map showed a connectedness of the people that had walked through those doors. They'd come from all over. And yet somehow, at some point in their life, they had come to the Dutch pantry. Now, you might see a map like this in a church. Maybe a church has a map of the globe and a pen for every missionary that they have sent out. Maybe they don't have the strings attached, but the reminders of, there are people here that we are connected to, that we have sent. Maybe you have a map, very similar, a map of the globe of places that you visited. But on this map, each point, each pin was connected. It was tethered to a string connected to the nail of the Dutch pantry in nowhere, Oklahoma. This morning, we will be looking at a map very similar to that map. In Luke 20, Jesus tells us a story. He reveals the connectedness of the story of Scripture. And the nail is not the Dutch pantry. The nail is Jesus. He tells us a story of how every story in Scripture is connected to him. He reveals this map to the religious leaders of Israel and to the people. This map specifically reminds Israel of their history, of where they've been, and how they are supposed to be connected to Jesus, the Messiah, in Jerusalem that very moment. But because the pride of the listeners... Instead of listening and finding the joy and the hope of the message of Jesus, they did not recognize him, and they rejected him. And we find ourselves very often in the same place. We read over and over the story of Jesus, and yet we do not recognize him in our lives. We do not hear him calling us back to covenant faithfulness 
we must care and take care of ourselves. Because as this passage will reveal, it is going to be very easy to point out other people's sin. It's going to be really hard to be introspective and see, how do I miss this call? How do I misunderstand this map that Jesus presents? Because unless we put away our pride and ask for the Spirit to remove our blindness, we will see ourselves as self-righteous. We will see ourselves as the religious leaders saw themselves. And we too might not recognize and might reject Jesus. Before we begin, let us pray. Father, there is nothing we can do on our own. For not a hair can fall from our head that you did not plan for. Yet we look at this world and we question, where are you, God? But then we wake up the next morning and should be reminded of your faithfulness because the sun is shining again by the hand of your power. Lord, please bless Christ Presbyterian Church. This morning we pray for Jim Haas, who's in the hospital after having surgery. We pray for the complications that he's, ha- that he's had. We pray for Cheryl. Bless them. Be with them. Lord, we rejoice that Shelly Pike returned to work this week after her wreck. Thank you for protecting her. May she recover. We pray for Sydney Wickens as she's had surgery on her knee and has had complication after complication. Lord, make her well. Lord, may we be a church that mourns with Tom Jeffries after the loss of a loved one. Yet at the same time, the same breath, we can rejoice because Doug Hay is here and alive and well. We pray that you are with Vicki Anderson in her treatments. We continue to pray for Carol Ray's mother. As she slowly slips away, remind us of your faithfulness. We pray for the Creek Moors who are in Atlanta this weekend. Lord, go before them in their future of where you are calling them to serve. We pray for Dana Osborne's mom, Y, and her father. We pray for those in our midst that have lost friends and family. We pray for those in our midst that suffer from anxiety and depression. For you're a God that cares not only for our souls, but our bodies. Because you created them and you saw them as good. And you are redeeming them through the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray for Grace Community Church in Union, Tennessee. A sister church. Bless the preaching of the word there this morning. 
May you soften their hearts and open their eyes to the good news of the gospel. We pray for every church in this county. Lord, may their leaders lead them in the gospel truth. Not pointing to their own righteousness or their own intelligence or their own good work, but to the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for President Trump. May he stand for righteousness and justice for the widow and the orphan. May the people around him give him guidance and wisdom. May he love his neighbor as himself. We pray for all of our elected officials in the state of Tennessee. May they bring forth the kingdom of God by their work. Lord, we pray this morning for the the victims of the plane crash of Boeing 737 to Ethiopia that killed 157 people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we take your word to the nations. Please bless Mark Scheibe and Liz Scheibe as they go to Northern Ireland to do just that. May they rest in your grace alone. In Christ's name, amen. In Luke 20, we pick up right where we left off last week and the week before and the week before and wait for it the week before that. In Luke 19, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, something that we've been preparing for since Luke 9, when Jesus set his face upon Jerusalem. Yet it's very important for us to understand that Luke 19 through Luke 24 happened in in one calendar week. It's taken us four weeks to get through 19 and 20. And we will be in chapter 20 next week. But we can't lose this idea that this is all happening within a week. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die. He foretold of this at least three times in the Gospel of Luke. The tension is high. He knows why he's there. Yet we must ask the question, Why? We're going to see two sides of this passage. In the first passage, we're going to see an argument. In the second, we're going to see an analogy. And in this argument, we must ask the question, why? Why is Jesus' authority being challenged? Why are the leaders of the people questioning Jesus. And I think to understand that question, we have to understand what's going on with these religious leaders. Because this is what they this is what they say in verse one. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, which we saw him do in chapter 19, as we've seen him do throughout the book of Luke, 
the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? But why? Why are they asking Jesus by what authority is he doing these things? And most of us are, have been in this type of situation. We've been at the family holiday or the reunion or the class reunion or maybe the dreaded great aunt's house. And we're all sitting around the table and we wait for it to happen. Someone brings up the topic of religion. I come from a house where my mother works at a non-denominational church, i.e. a Baptist church with a really cool website. My brother is an Episcopal priest, and I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister. I understand this tension. When will religion be brought up? We're sitting around the table, and we're just waiting for the question. And it's usually the same question, right? Who gives you the authority to do this? By what authority do you do this? Or why do you not do this? And yet these questions can be very complex. Some of you might be feeling the anxiety of these conversations that you've had. Yet Jesus, being forced into this circumstance, in this circumstance stands his ground. And he responds this way. I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptist of John from heaven or from man? Side note, if you're in this conversation, don't bring up baptism. There's lots of times where we read scripture and the correct application of a passage is by the help of of the Holy Spirit, we should do as Jesus does. I don't know if this is one of those situations where I would say, use Jesus' tactic at Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus was teaching in the temple. They were having a discussion, much like we could have a discussion after a sermon, to talk about what Jesus was preaching on. However, Jesus did not pass over the question. But he asked them another question. Let's see where he goes. I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. They pleaded the fifth. Now, there's a lot of lawyers in the room, and so I don't want to get this wrong. Pleading the Fifth Amendment is an act or an instance of asserting one's right against self-incrimination. It is the refusal to testify under oath in the court of law on the ground that that testimony might be used as evidence against the witness to convict him or her of a criminal offense. They want to answer, but they don't. It's interesting to notice the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, and yet they seem to be the ones trapped. They can answer this question in two ways. 
they can reveal their true unbelief that John was not from God and they should have listened to him. But they didn't. Or they could answer, and by rejecting John's baptism, and it's interesting that they were so scared of the people. Back to the question of why. Why are these religious leaders asking Jesus this question? In scholarship, this time period is called Second Temple Judaism. And in that culture in which Jesus ministered, it was very apparent that Israel, God's chosen people, had forgotten their identity. They had forgotten their purpose. Remember, throughout the entire Old Testament, from Genesis 1 to Malachi, God had an end goal in mind for his people. We Presbyterians put it this way. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The question and answer to Catechism 1. We are to glorify God first. The first and the greatest commandment that Jesus tells us. And the second question to the Catechism is this. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Third question. You guys didn't know you were getting a catechism lesson today. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The rest of the catechism goes on to explain what scriptures teach on what we should believe. And it also explains what scripture teaches on what God requires of us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The summary of the law. From Genesis to Malachi, wait for it, we see eschatology. We see the goal. God's people are to enjoy him forever. God's people are supposed to glorify him forever. All of scripture informs us of how to do that. The scripture does not tell us what we should just think about God, because that's not what Christianity is, that we just think about God. Christianity is that we experience God, that we have God amongst us. And we see this throughout the covenants, from Adam to Noah to Abraham. This is the identity of Israel, to glorify God and to enjoy him. Yet we see these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had forgotten this goal. Instead, they desired to be a blessing to those around them. Not by being blessed by God, not by being a holy nation, not by being a kingdom of priests, but they desired to rule over the nations. 
They did not want to bless the Roman Empire. They wanted to conquer it. They wanted the authority that Jesus had. But they had lost sight of the covenant. They had lost sight of who they were. Their entire structure they had developed was now being questioned by Jesus. This is the present scene in Jerusalem. This is what's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. Yet Jesus asks them about John the Baptist. Essentially, the religious leaders are asking Jesus where he got his authority from, and Jesus asks them, where does John get his authority? And we should know the answer. From the very beginning of Luke, it tells us about John the Baptist and Jesus. And it's quite interesting. So I don't have scripture sheets for you this morning. Um, You will be thankful for that. Because if I had a scripture sheet, it would probably be about five pages long. But today, please, and please do it today because tomorrow you'll forget. And probably by this afternoon you'll forget. But today, go back and read the book of Malachi. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. This is what Malachi 3.1 says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of my co- of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And in the next chapter, Malachi says, and these are literally the last words before the Old Testament closes. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to the hearts of their children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God sent this messenger, Elijah, who was already dead to prepare the way. He sent John the Baptist. And that is exactly where Luke picks up the story. Luke 1, we see Zechariah's song saying, do not or we see the angel of the Lord speaking to Zechariah, and he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be a great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to their children. The Old Testament ends, and this is exactly where Luke begins the story. John the Baptist was the promised one to prepare the way of the Lord. He had a baptism and a mission from heaven so that the Lord may go to the temple. And this is exactly in Luke 20 where we are. The Lord is in the temple preaching the good news of the gospel. He's preaching, repent, return to the Lord, return to covenant faithfulness 
in the Lord. Yet their hearts will be hard. And we see this, Jesus talking about this in Luke chapter 7. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Jesus is connecting himself to John the Baptist. They both derived their authority from the same place, from heaven. The religious leaders were rejecting Jesus' authority. How are we rejecting Jesus' authority? Are you planning on pleading the fifth? Or have you turned in repentance as Jesus has called us to the gospel to believe in him? These religious leaders had devised a plan of their own salvation. They wanted to be saved by their own rules. They wanted to be saved by their own righteousness. They wanted to be saved based upon their own authority rather than the authority of Jesus. Have you tried to set up your own plan of salvation? If I do this, then Jesus will love me. If I don't do this, then Jesus will love me. Are you relying upon your success in your job, in your children, in your grandchildren, in your athletic ability, in your status, in your social media updates? Is this the foundation in which you want to stand before God? Or do you stand upon the righteousness of Jesus? Do you rest upon the promises of God that he is faithful and just to forgive us, not based upon our own righteousness, but of the work and the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is the salvation that Jesus brings. This is why he's in Jerusalem. They didn't want to lose their authority. Are you afraid of losing yours? It's interesting Matthew 28, the Great Commission, this is how Jesus begins it. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is where we should rest. The religious leaders should have known this answer. They should have known, just as the readers of the gospel, us, should know. This passage points anyone who knows Jesus and John's baptism and John the Baptist ministries. We should recognize that this question by these leaders is a very bad question. They should have already known. Leaders of this church, how are we building Christ's church? So Jesus' authority was challenged, and he had an argument. And then Jesus gives us an analogy. 
he gives us a story in verse 9. And the reason that I wanted, I was persistent to teach these two passages together, even though I really could have preached about four sermons on the, this one passage, and I'm going to bite a bullet real quick. John, you are right. I'm just going to leave it right there. And we saw in these two questions in verses 2 through 4 that Jesus actually answered their question by referring to John the Baptist. But now on this map, Jesus is going to show them the answer to this question. If you want to get a good glimpse or an expanded version of this map without reading the whole Old Testament, read Acts 7. So I've now given you five chapters to read today so far. I'm not done. Acts 7 is Stephen's sermon before his stone that tells the entire redemptive history of Israel. And this is what Jesus does in this passage. Jesus draws a very simple map showing that he is the center of all of created history. In verse 9, And he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, when we start reading this parable, it sounds very much like the parable that I preached a few weeks ago. But it's actually very different. You see, the one I preached on a month ago, Jesus gave his people minas that they might do diligent with them while he's gone. That parable actually spoke about the future. Jesus is gone. What are we going to do with what he's given us? But yet here, even though it sounds similar, we have God leaving, but this is actually telling us of our past, where we've come from. As we read the Old Testament, as we read the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 5, this is the background of this analogy. Israel is the vineyard. The tenants were the leaders, the kings, the priests, the Levites, the scribes. They were commissioned for a very important purpose to point the people to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. This was their covenant obligation from Sinai. God has redeemed you. Therefore, obey me. Yet they found themselves off course. They found themselves as covenant breakers. So what does God do? He sends them prophets. Luke 20, 10 through 12. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. And they also beat him and treated him shamefully, shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Now, I could have done a whole sermon on just that on the, what the prophets were supposed to do. Because we, we tend to think of prophets as future tellers. This is what's going to happen. But I think it's actually better for us to understand the prophets as storytellers. Then they have been coming to the Bible study. What have we read over and over and over in Deuteronomy? Remember, remember, remember. This is what the prophets did. 
Remember what God did for you. He brought you out of Egypt. He made you his people. Therefore, you have covenant obligations to obey him. This is what the prophets did over and over and over again to remind God's people of the story that they were a part of, that they are tethered to God and the covenants. Yet we see over and over again that they rejected the prophets. In Jeremiah 7, it says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. This is the analogy that Jesus is giving us. Israel was consistently rejecting the message of the of the prophets. They were persistently rejecting the God of the covenant, the God that redeemed them. So in both of these sections, we see John the Baptist, his authority came from heaven, connected Jesus, his authority was from heaven. And then we get to the apex of the story. In verse 13, And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Now, every reader of this gospel should hear those words and be reminded of John's baptism of Jesus, where the voice of heaven said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. The story points to Jesus. But that's not what happened. They didn't listen to Jesus, the great prophet, like they should have. Instead, they said, let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. There's a sarcastic absurdity to this. And it reminds us of our absurdity when we sin. Because that's what sin is, right? It never makes sense. It's never the right thing to do. But in the moment, in the time when we sin, at that moment it seems like the right thing to do. And then our eyes are opened by the Spirit. And we see our guilt. They thought by killing the son that they would receive the inheritance. But what we see happen in verse 16 is that the landowner doesn't give them the inheritance, but he actually gives it to somebody else. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God's people were supposed to be a blessing to the people around them. Yet they had forgotten who they were. And what does this passage say? That he would come and destroy those tenants and give their vineyard to others. This word destroy is a very peculiar word. It's used 29 times in Luke and Acts. It's the same word used in Luke 13. 
No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will perish. In Luke 15, it is used seven times, speaking of the lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. It's used in Luke 17 to speak of those who did not enter Noah's ark as those who were destroyed. So it can be translated a few different ways, destroyed, lost, perishing. It's very interesting to see in Luke 19 how this word is used. There in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, He came to seek and save. And then there's this word, the lost. It's very easy of us to look at these religious leaders and say, they just didn't get it. They should have got it, but they didn't get it. But yet, this is the exact people that Jesus came to save, the lost. We might get puffed up in our pride to say we are God's people. The world's going to get theirs. We have the covenants. But yet, we have the same mission as God's mission. We are to seek and save the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to deny Christ's authority. It's easy for us to reject his story. Turn with me in Luke chapter 19, what John preached on just a few weeks ago, starting in verse 41. And tell me, is this the response that you had for these religious leaders when you first read this parable? And when he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you even had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Is that our posture to the lost? Do we weep because they do not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I'll conclude with this. It's interesting to see here that Jesus quotes Psalm 118. We actually use this in our call to worship this morning. This is the third time Luke uses Psalm 118 in this gospel. It's really interesting to know the background of Psalm 118. You see, Psalm 18 was actually um, a joyous hymn of the people of Israel returning to Israel because God had redeemed them. This is why they were singing. Out of my distress I called the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in him. I shall look in triumph to those who hate, who hate me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. This is what people were singing as they came into Jerusalem. But yet we find the people in Jerusalem, the tides have turned. And in Jerusalem, what is going on is the same thing that is going on when the prophets went to them and said, repent, return to God. Israel rejected God's plan of redemption for them and for the nations. Yet here is what's so interesting about this passage. What was man's plan in this passage? To kill Jesus and to take his inheritance. And that's exactly what happened. And because God is gracious and merciful, he used the sinful actions of this people to actually bring forth his great plan of redemption and take Jesus to the cross. God uses our sin to bring about his redemption. Now, this is not a license to go on sinning. God sent Jesus into the world to redeem it. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to hinder this plan? Are we going to reject this cornerstone? It's interesting, this Psalm 118, in the context of rejecting this cornerstone, it was the nations that had rejected the cornerstone of Israel. Israel was the cornerstone in Psalm 118. The nations rejected it because they didn't identify God's plan of redemption for the world was to come through Israel. And now Israel is rejecting Jesus, the true cornerstone of our faith. It is by him that we have righteousness through faith alone. We come empty-handed. So this passage teaches us the full history of redemption so that we may glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, help us in our time of need. Open our eyes to our sin, to our pride. May we not reject Jesus in our lives and put ourselves in his place. For then your church will fall. May you receive all glory and honor. Amen.